Hi everyone, welcome back to Women Blazers. I'm your host, Deanna Witter. Today I'm excited to welcome Laura Descani Weems as our featured guest for this episode. Laura serves as the Senior Vice President of Global Communications for Elevate Sports Ventures. Laura has over 20 years of sports entertainment, communications, and marketing experience with NBA, NHL, top 10 internationally renowned venues, marquee professional sports leagues and properties, and global entertainment brands. She built the foundation of her career in marketing and public relations with Comcast Spectacore and the Harlem Globetrotters. Laura has had a record-breaking career, but Laura is most fulfilled in her role as mother to her children Carter and Ellie. She credits the momentum she has had in her career and life from the response and learnings of her family's remarkable journey. I want to flag before I answer this question that when you reached out and said, let's do this interview, let's talk about this. And as a PR executive, I deferred you to another executive, which is my job to put forth my brilliant executives, um, especially under this amazing platform you've created for women in sports. Um, but you you sort of pushed back and you said, well, there's a story to be told. I did want to take a second and just appreciate the fact that you have pulled together a really diverse group of guests for this podcast. You've got LGBTQ mothers, you've got you know, single women aspiring to manage a family and a career. You've got diversity in title and, and verticals and property type and league. And I do want to really just take a moment and appreciate the fact that my story is unique and I especially have struggled in finding other mothers with special needs children of my son's nature, yeah. um, which I'll, I'll get to later. But I wanted to just thank you for a moment for, for pursuing diversity in your oh. guests. Well, thank you so much for acknowledging that. You know, it, it means a lot to me and and everybody's journey is so unique and special and we can learn so much from each other when we just open up and find the courage to share. Yeah. All right, Laura, you went to the College of William and Mary in Virginia and competed in track and field as a Division I collegiate athlete. How did being an athlete shape your college decision and your overall college experience? I love that you jump right in, Deanna. This is pure point guard in you, just like going for it right out of the gates. Um, I think as a fellow athlete, you will understand this phrase, being on a team is a privilege, not a right. Yeah. Right. So as college athletes, it's about appreciation and gratitude and respect for those marks that you're wearing on your cross country jersey or your basketball jersey or your soccer jersey. Looking up during a cross country race, seeing my girls in green and gold, it's special. <laughs> and wearing those marks this is the honor, right? And I remember, I can still hear Katie O'Reilly, CRO of the Philadelphia 76ers saying, no one is above the brand. So it holds true in our careers today, right? These logos, these marks on our business cards, they're for respect, they're for appreciation, we're proud to be wearing them. Um, and William & Mary was one of those schools where you had to be ferociously involved. Mm -hmm. And I was like the 12 season athlete. I was all conference, all region, a captain, four years, pen relays, like all the things, a tour guide, the president's award, like all of the <laughs> stuff, right? And still, I remember vividly sitting in Cambridge University one summer and a classmate saying, well, why aren't you a double major? And again, the, the expectation was that you were going to be ferociously involved. So I picked up my second major um, my junior year. I was cutting open cadavers. I was reading Chaucer. And that kind of phrase, more is more, 
followed me on, started on this journey in college and continued through my career. So it's that the glorification, I will say, of the, especially for the lonely cross country and track and field runner, what you're doing when no one's watching, the early morning stims, the 14 mile runs on Sunday morning, the 100 mile weeks in the sticky summer Williamsburg <laughs> air and the 5 a.m. swims with the buoy between your legs. Um, it just, you know, I think everything about that college athletic experience mirrors what we went through future moving forward in our in our careers in this industry. We've all been the last car in the parking lot leaving after a game night. We've all opened the arena at 4 a.m. for TV, uh, TV hits. Um, what excites me and what I'd love your take on today is when you think of what you quietly went through in those training rooms in the morning, getting your stim to what sort of the glamorization of those efforts are right now with women in sports and NIL and the opportunities in social media. How do you think that would have impacted your college experience as an athlete? I would have thought about it completely different you know I, I think as mm. an athlete I think about it more it was about what I was gaining about the team and with nil and everything else I think I would start to think about it more as a business and I didn't think of it as a business I thought of it more as you know what am I doing for the team not for myself and ultimately what is this going to lead me I knew I wasn't going to be a professional athlete I don't know about you but I ultimately saw it as a as a means to you know fulfill a dream and then take that on to a career Exactly. And I, I think this moving into sort of your next question about my, my graduate school and, and how that came to be, I don't think I realized that there was a career in sports like yeah. so many at that time. Um, and, and being introduced to the George Washington University through the College of William Mary Athletics Department and meeting Lisa Delphi Narati gave me that time and exposure um, to be in DC, to move into grad school, to have more exposure to an active wise community. Um, and, and some of those, those classes in business school were the ones that shaped my perception and appreciation of listening in business and empathy in business and opened my eyes to a larger business world. Whereas in college, I think I was very, very much focused on my, on my athletics and being an active member of that community. When you went um, into college originally, did you have a vision for your career? My vision for my career was like run in the Athens Olympics, I think. I think it was a <laughs> let's go, let's learn, let's become an English major like my father was. And he went on to be an attorney. So that seemed good. Um, but it really, and then I'm, you know, like I said, dissecting human cadavers, um, you know, after practice for my kinesiology major and not really putting it together. And I think after we spend so many hours in the training room as athletes, you're like, I don't know if I can be a trainer. I think I want to find some other route. So being presented with George Washington University, the opportunities in grad school, the, the ability to go to the Athens Olympics as a sports business student. And that's where I got the bug, right? Like yeah. I'm walking into the opening ceremonies, like everyone did in, athlete, in Athens with, they're still painting the wall. And, you know, you're walking into the Reebok house and you're seeing Andy Roddick and I'm watching the U.S. win like 101 gold medals at the open air stadium that they didn't finish in time. And I remember walking through the Visa house, the Visa Athletic House, and thinking like, this is a job? And you just get that, <laughs> that Olympic bug. And you know, fast forward to where I am today, sitting in LA, heading to dinner before the Sports Business Journal um, World Congress Conference. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna have dinner with two executives on my team that have vast Olympic um, resources and Rolodex in their history. Cameron Wagner, our chief client officer, was a brilliant brand marketer, placing yeah. the very advertising that I was seeing at those Athens Olympic Games. And Molly Maslini, who founded Infinite Scale, now Elevate Creative, is a decorated history supporting Olympic experiential design. So it's, it's life is long and the world is small. And that Olympic buzz, that was, that was what opened the door to me and said, I, I have to live in this world. That's, that's incredible. And it, it just not like you can tell, like in your experiences as an athlete, as you navigated into 
um, you, you know, into George Washington University for the School of Business, you knew what you were looking for um, in, in the experiences that you were and that jumping into a career right away wasn't the right thing for you at that time, but you obviously gained those experiences that came full circle considering what you're doing tonight for, for dinner. Now, after graduation, um, you, know, you joined Comcast uh, Spectacore as a marketing manager. So how did you land that first opportunity and what were some of the key takeaways from, from growing in, the, in, in that organization specifically? So I always say that that first job, and again, this is sort of a theme that should follow us throughout our careers. The first job is about education, access, opportunity inspiration, right? Am I, am I being educated? Do I have access? Is there opportunity? Am I inspired by this company? And that was a period of amazing, brilliant, vibrant growth for Comcast Vector at the time. And, you know, the other thing I typically say is don't be married to the logo that you want on your first business card. Of course, have aspirations to put that NFL logo or that NGV logo or that Nike logo on your business card someday, but take this first job for those first things. And many of my peers, 20-something peers coming into Comcast Spectre at the time had those really cool Sixers and Flyers logos on their business card. And they were going to have aspirations to move into the revenue and commercial side of the business. And here I was uh, with the monster trucks and the Libazoner Stallions <laughs> and the Disney on Ices and the Sesame Street Lives and Harlem Globetrotters. And if you can sell My Little Ponies Live and Disney Skating's Gretchen Wilson's Country on Ice, you can sell anything. Um, but... I appreciated that when it came to opportunity and access, I was placing hundreds of thousands of dollars in advertising in a top five market in the country. And I had the opportunity to play with these extraordinary global brands. And, and that time working with Feld Entertainment or a V Corp deeply in, influenced the way that I saw brand and brand guidelines. And I still do media training today where I refer to the phrase, be a Disney princess when it comes to diligence and respect for the brands that you are supporting. So Comcast Spectacore was such a rite of passage time in my career, and I was thrilled to have done it in my early 20s. Everything from how do you shut down Broad Street to march elephants down for Ringling Brothers <laughs> to the $1,000 dog nights and what I call sort of uh, bubblegum PR, right? But it was a time of, of really amazing creativity and, uh, you know, how would I know that my first show at Comcast Spectre at the time would be the Anne One Mixtape Tour presented by Mountain Dew? Do you remember this one? <laughs> I the love professor? the yes. One. yes, I love the yes. Anne One Mixtape. Yes, and so fast great. forward 15 years later, Anne One founder and CEO Seth Berger would become the managing director of the Sixers Innovation Lab, and I would be pitching like renowned executive and entrepreneur Seth Berger and his entrepreneurs to Fox Business and Bloomberg, right? So life is long, the world is small. But Comcast Spectacore, much like Harris Blitzer Sports Entertainment would be later, was a period, a place where the more you raised your hand, the more you got called on, yeah. right? So there were like 100 mentor and protege programs. There was massive growth, right? Half the executives you see at Oakview Group today were part of that early Comcast Spectacore Global Spectrum family. I moved to Colorado for a year. Like I was on the train, move up, move out. Um, I had my 6,800 seat arena with my AHL team. I came back to Philadelphia. I uh, took over the NLL Philadelphia Wings business operations from Frank Maselli, who continued on his journey towards the San Antonio Spurs. Um, but you know, from a mentorship and a teaching perspective, Comcast Spectacle really gave me all the tools. And I'll, yeah. I'll notably call out um, Laura Price, who was at the time president of business operations for the Sixers, stopping by my office one day when I was running the Philadelphia Wings and saying like, hey, why don't you come to my weekly staff meeting? Why don't you just listen and watch me run this business. 
And what was inspiring was not just the way she ran those meetings with poise and focus and confidence and all of the things that Laura Price is, but that she was proactively as a president reaching out to me like a young director, call it, to initiate a mentorship relationship with a division and a department and a team that was in no way underneath her. Yeah. Um, and acknowledging how unique and new it was going to be for me to sit in front of this boardroom um, and manage a team in a position I'd never had before. So it was very, that was the beginning of, for that specific mentorship relationship, that was the beginning of a, of a 15 year mentorship and, and deep friendship. That's, that's remarkable. And I love like the message just in whole, you know, look for, yeah, that first job, it's, it's about education, opportunity and access. Like you, it's about finding those opportunities that's going to give you the, the opportunity to have mentors like you had with Laura and get access to the individuals like that being brought into the room um, to be able to invest in your ultimately career and ultimately tap into your passions. You know, you didn't know what your passions mm. were probably when you went in, mm. um, but you walked away with those passions, I imagine. Oh, absolutely. I think I was on the train at that time. The global spectrum train was taking me towards a uh, venue GM, yeah. right? That was sort of the path. You went to your global spectrum building, you became a director of marketing, then you became a GM, then you were booking the building and you were dealing with the live nations and AGs of the world. And it was, I was wildly inspiring. I was all in. I absolutely adored my job. Just loved it. So your journey takes a completely new purpose in 2010 when you and your husband welcome your son into the world and the title of mom or mother becomes the most important title that you'll ever hold. So just curious if you can share with us your family's extraordinary journey. Oh, Diana, you're so sweet. And I want to, I want to flag before I answer this question that when you reached out and said, let's do this interview, let's talk about this. And as a PR executive, I deferred you to another executive, which is my job to put forth my brilliant executives, um, especially onto this amazing platform you've created for women in sports. Um, but you, you sort of pushed back and you said, well, there's a story to be told. I did want to take a second and just appreciate the fact that you have pulled together a really diverse group of guests for this podcast. You've got LGBTQ mothers, you've got, you know, single women aspiring to manage a family and a career. You've got diversity in title and, and verticals and property type and league. And I do want to really just take a moment and appreciate the fact that my story is unique and I especially have struggled in finding other mothers with special needs children of my son's nature, yeah. um, which I'll, I'll get to later. But I wanted to just thank you for a moment for, for pursuing diversity in your oh. guests. Well, thank you so much for acknowledging that. You know, it, it means a lot to me and, and everybody's journey is so unique and special and we can learn so much from each other when we just open up and find the courage to share. Yeah. Well, you were very, for this, for this one over here who likes to be on the other side of the camera, you've done a lot to get me in front of the microphone here, but I'll, I'll answer your question with a, a quote from Roger Kipling's poem, If, and you're an athlete, so I know you've heard this one before, but one of the lines is, watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. And that line always echoed with me through that hard period of my life. And you and I both had, you had your twins when you were 28. I had my son when I was 28, which seems very, very young now, yes. um, but Right. But, uh, but, you know, we were both and you were with Timbo at the time and I was running this Comcast Spectacore, you know, gamut. And we were both moving very, very fast. And we had all of the things, right. That I have the, I'm the division one athlete. And my husband's this all conference football player and I've got the cool sports job and the house and the wedding and all of the things. And then they put this baby into your arms. And in your case, two babies, and you realize this is the thing. This is the yeah. only thing that matters. And within a second of realizing that was all that matters, everything broke. 
and we were not aware that he was going to be sick. And to save you all the uh, the gross postmortem, it was a rare metabolic illness, protein deficiency. His liver was impacted, and essentially, this liver issue called OTC deficiency left him with severe brain damage and sort of the catch-all diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And you know, you go from two college athletes marrying each other, major planners, plan on everything in my life, down to the rating point and the grip for my TV to asking a doctor, will my child be able to throw a ball? Will they be able to swing on the swings? Will they talk? Will they respond? You know, down to, will they know me? Will my child know that I'm their mother? Will they know that I love them if I hold them? And these were really hard questions and the doctors answered them appropriately, which was, we don't know. You have this child, he's been severely, severely impacted by ammonia leaking out of his liver into his brain. And I left my job and every day for 10 months until his liver transplant was a battle to keep more brain damage from dripping into his brain. It was a very dark time. Um, yeah. All of the bad things that we feel as mothers generally, I'm a failure. Oh my, I didn't know I was carrying this genetic disorder and I stopped running. I didn't watch the news for almost two years. Imagine a publicist not watching the news for two years, right? I didn't see any friends. You know, life was very gray. Mm -hmm. um, and it, would, it, it was years later, you know, when Scott O'Neill, former HBSC CEO and now CEO of Merlin Entertainments, pushed me to write my story down to include in his book, Be Where Your Feet Are, and pushed me to present my journey before our company executive summit of 200 peers that I really had to address not only the, the, the million little steps that it took to climb out of that dark period um, from I don't want to run, what's the point, what's the point in anything, to we should get Carter into school, to we should give Carter a sibling to, I think I need to work again. Um, and, you know, my son is what I call super duper special needs. He is nonverbal, non-mobile, wheelchair bound, quadriplegic. Life is really, really hard. Yeah. And I could cry every single day for what he won't have in life. Um, I could tell you about the day we went to Special Olympics tryouts and I was like, this is our place. And they tried so hard with him, but it, he just was not physically capable to participate in what they other children at Special Olympics could do. And so I'm sitting there at Special Olympics looking at these other children going, oh my gosh, they're so advanced. And my son was not there. And, and but crying and crying and, and, you know, again, those million little steps. And I have a wonderful force of family around us. And my son goes to the best school in the country for children with cerebral palsy right now. And he has an incredible sister who's a nine-year-old taking care of her 12-year-old brother who's deeply sensitive and empathetic and clever and cool and helps mommy with Carter's straps and does all of the things. And it is a gift. And, and, and as I, as I, thought through talking with you about my son and his unique journey and our family's extraordinary journey and my wonderful, wonderful husband that's been with me the entire way. Um, the, one of the gifts is showing my daughter how we navigate and troubleshoot through her brother's unique life and how that makes our family extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And bringing the nine-year-old into the conversation, Ellie, what do we do? There's no ramp here. How are we gonna get Carter up to the gym for your basketball practice? and giving her exposure to the hard moments to sort of train resistance in her. Yes, yes. The million steps that you take every day, you know, is just absolutely remarkable. Your story is so beautiful and incredible. And I just thank you for sharing it with us. Um, and, and I think about, you know, the mountain that you climb every day um, and the, just the energy that you bring and such with such passion. And it's, it's so true that everybody has it inside them 
you just got to mm-hmm. pull it out, right? And I think listening to your story and then obviously in the energy in which you talk about your work and the passion of your work and your family makes it that much more, like I said, inspirational to think about, man, like every day I can find like that light to keep pushing forward in, in my steps. You know, when you think there there are struggles and there are days of struggles. And I think I always think of the one of the best and first media training sessions that I had was about baby showers. Mm-hmm. And as a female in the industry and as a female, you know, you attend a baby shower, some percentage of your guests are struggling with fertility at that mm-hmm. baby shower and they're putting the smile on their face, but it can be the hardest time in your life. And I remember speaking to a then therapist and I said, listen, I'm trying to rebuild my life here and I'm trying to get things together. And I go to these baby showers and it all comes crashing down with one question about what's going to happen to my son. And in a very pivot-esque media training way, my therapist at the time said, well, I want you to tell me three things that make you incredibly happy. Just make your heart burn with love about your son. And I said, oh, he has beautiful blue eyes like his father. Well, give me another one. Oh, he loves the song Wheels on the Bus. Give me another one. Oh, when he sleeps on his dad's shoulders. Oh, give me another one. Oh, when he uses eye gaze device, he can read books and it's magical. All right. Now, when you get those questions, and again, this is a very media training-esque yeah. pivot way. When you get the hard question, I want you to go straight to one of those facts that makes your heart just sing. And it's so, it was such an important tactic for me to rebuild myself that when you got that hard question, you know, will he ever walk? What's going on? Well, how sick is he? To go, let me tell you about his therapy right now that he's getting at this incredible school. You don't need to know, audience, that my life is hard, but you do need to know that I'm approaching it with passion and I'm, I'm seeking to build an extraordinary family. So we all have those hard moments and we sort of have to go back to our pivot points and remember what our goal is. I love that. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it's incredible. And I, what I also want to note is you had this passion to go back to work. So in 2011, you team up with the Harlem Globetrotters as a marketing public relations consultant. So what inspired you to get back to work again? What did it mean to you personally to work again? You know, this was a very, like I said, this was a period of, I went radio silent on almost all of my friends for two years. It was very few social media posts, no networking, not reading the news to you know, those baby steps back and realizing, I think I need to work again, um, yeah. approached an old boss of mine from Comcast FetchCore, Mike Kenny, one of the best people managers I know in the industry, now CEO of Ripken Baseball, an HBSE property, actually, who was EVP mm-hmm. of marketing for the Globetrotters at the time. And I said, like, I think I need to work. And I've got tears in my eyes and I'm trying to piece my life back together. I've got my hair cut up to my ears because I gave it all to Locks for Love, you know, like wow. a really transitional period of my life. And, you know, jumping into two little shows in like Albany and Rochester to years later, you know, 50 shows over 25 markets. I'm putting on the Harlem Globetrotters event at Fashion Week. Um, and it was really boot camp in relearning who I had been for the first 10 years of my life. Wow. And that period in terms of a career, not just rebuilding myself and understanding that I could work again and feeling proud again and having my daughter and getting my son into his, his wonderful school and getting my son his first wheelchair. And it was a major transitional time for us. But from a career standpoint, relearning the language of the industry can and and in ter- being a promoter in this industry and working across much like Teambo, working across these 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 different venues count i mean in terms of like a coming back second graduate school to remind myself about those things that I'd, I mean, talk about mommy brain. I was out for a year and a half, two years with this, you know, talking to doctors and nurses all the times and liver transplants and 20 pounds and getting into the right weight. So this period of time was not only easy, it was not easing back in at all. I was sprinting back in. I think you and I spoke, I took a five week maternity 
leave with my daughter just to prove that I could like do it. Um, You know, yes, I was like out in Phoenix and meetings five weeks after I had my daughter just to prove and like back to living and dying by the box office count and, and really feeling myself again. Um, So it was a a very important time. And like I said, my swan song was this New York fashion week event. And I said, you know what? I think, I think I'm, I'm starting to understand who I am as this type of working mother. You became the director of marketing for the Globetrotters, a role you served for three and a half years before joining 76ers and HBSE, you know, where you were named the director of corporate communications. How did you come to the decision? This was the best next move for you and your career. Yeah, the Globetrotters was an absolutely a natural step. And, you know, I think it comes down to not to make too many track and field metaphors in this conversation, but it it comes down to understanding where you are in your life and what pace you need, right? I have a big poster that a girlfriend made me on my wall that says you can have it all. And we all know that's not necessarily true, but it's about what you want in that all and understanding the pace that you need. And I was still struggling with, with who I was. I knew I thought what a working mother with a jogging stroller looked like, but I was a working mother with a wheelchair mm-hmm. and I was still sort of struggling to find her somewhere to look up to the way that I used to look up to Laura Price, for example, as a young executive. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, you know, a, a few people said, you're going to have to just be her. She doesn't exist. She's mm-hmm. not here in the way that you want her to be. You're not going to find this other woman and this other mother. That's going to be you. Um, and so through the Globetrotters strain, it was Laura Price that said, I think you we're doing exciting things in the Sixers. I didn't even realize you were working again. Come meet us. Um, that led me back to the Philadelphia 76ers, you know, an organization that I'd done deals for in my early 20s. And it was, you know, in terms of pace, it was the right time. The, the leadership of that organization from the managing directors, Josh Harris and David Blitzer, and the innovation and the drive and the drive to be first and to build and to build the training complex. This was the right organization for me at that time. Um, and a way to continue to challenge myself. There were stories to tell and I was ready to leave behind marketing and operations and move into a, a wholly communications role because the momentum of that organization was such. Um, and so during that time, you know, it, it was real growth. It was real growth and it was a real reemergence back into the industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and then you, you know, while you were there, you moved into the senior director role into a vice president of corporate communications role. So as you talk about growth, what was your approach to growth? How do you sort of look at an opportunity and um, pinpoint, okay, I, I, I don't know if you wanted to be there or if you just grew into it. But what was sort of your approach to to grow into that vice president position? You know, I think some of the some of the title changes happen when you're doing the work, right? When your head is down and you're really focused on what the work is. And like I said, that organization was a freight train at the time. And it was a number of my C-suite executives that sat down and said, you have a wonderful role here with the Sixers. You could be in this role forever and ever. Would you like more? Would you like to speak all the languages of the industry? Would you like to help with our NHL team? Would you like to help with the building? You know, and again, another organization where if you raised your hand, you got called on. Would you like to learn about esports? We're buying an esports franchise. So in that seven years, jumping between properties as sort of a a corporate communications mercenary, it was first Jersey patch in professional sports helmet uh, history, first NHL helmet brand partnership in pro sports history, Um, first, you know, a sports betting partnership with the New Jersey Devils, crypto partnership with the Sixers, Um, you know, esports, first in esports property, launching a giant massive innovation lab, launching HBSE Ventures investment fund, building a training complex, um, launching a massive diversity, equity, inclusion initiative, games in London and Shanghai and Sweden and Switzerland, 
Um, it was a really glorious, brilliant time for, you know, young energetic executives to to move forward. So I think we were winning fast innovative company the same year that we lost the most games in the MBA. I mean, this was a wonderful, wonderful period where the more you raise your hand and for an executive like yourself, who knows what it's like to take the stairs and to stay late and to work for every second, you know, back to that education, access, inspiration, opportunity, it was all there. Yeah. No. And it, it, you seize every moment. I think that's so important as the takeaway. It's like all these incredible things are happening around you. And anytime you can raise your hand, you raised it. Um, and obviously that pays off and, um, mm -hmm. it, it's again, just a great reminder, not just to put your head down, but to look up for those opportunities to raise your hand. Now in 2022, mm -hmm. you were named the senior vice president of global communications for Elevate Sports Ventures, which is the role you serve today. You know, what do you enjoy most about your role in working for a global sports enterprise now? You know, I will, I will quote um, Al Guido, our chairman and CEO, also president of the San Francisco 49ers, his good friends with Simon Sinek, who, of course, is famous for pushing the my why, right? And, yeah. and we use the why as, and I think you and I are very similar wise. You know, when I think about the why, and I, I push on this in media training because it's important for executives to understand that their why is going to dictate every answer that they give in an interview. And, and after experiencing all the amazing global exposure that we could create through the Harris Book, and watching those news and that thought leadership really echo across the globe and that we could influence with the decisions that we were making in our sports business and with our NHL and NBA and esports teams and properties and beyond, we were influencing the way that the global market was moving across the world. We were influencing business in Shanghai and London, right? So, you know, looking naturally maturing into a place where my why became driving impact across the international sports and entertainment ecosystem. What could we bring through Elevate Sports Ventures, which we also founded during my time at HBSC, um, that would influence the global business marketplace? So can I position our executives at Elevate who are best in class executives from every brand logo property that you'd ever want to work with and alongside? How do I position their thought leadership or their analytics or their data-driven learnings or their best practices across the industry to raise the bar collectively and to share these thought leaderships that are just going to drive all of us forward? So in terms of getting to play with 175 global clients, um, the agency is now three times nominated agency for sports business journal awards world cup and u.s open and circuit of the americas it's a really really inspiring place to be um and there's something about that startup mentality even though we have the backing of arctos sports partners and the san francisco 49ers and the philadelphia 76ers and harris blitzer and oakview group and live nation Ticketmaster. um there's real entrepreneurialism here and there's a real chance to change and raise the bar in the industry mm. It sounds incredible and such impactful work. And you can, like I said, every time you you share something, there's just such passion in your words. Um, I'm sold. <laughs> like <it's amazing. laughs> well, you know, we get so, and you you know what this is like. We get so focused on the parking list or the comp spreadsheet or the 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 this and that and the ticky tack of our everyday teams and venues and properties that we're working in sometimes we forget to look up and yeah. really look up and appreciate that there's this massive global ecosystem and there's so many incredible thought practices and that's why luckily in my role now connected to so many incredible editors and producers and writers and journalists I'm swirling in this really impressive world of thought leadership. And, you know, when I, I'll give a shout out to my friends at, at Leaders in Sports, I think every executive in, in this industry should attend a Leaders Week in London and just be exposed and pull their head up from the parking list and realize what really 
amazing innovation is taking place um, and bring it back to their organization. Yes, yes, I could not agree more. Now, in every episode, I'd like to go through sort of themes that are discussed in, in previous um, episodes. But given your extensive publicity and media training background, I want, I want to lean into professional branding through presentation, which is always just a really key topic as women, you know, the exposure and training of, of media training and interview training isn't just presented to us. Like you, it's almost just like learn as you go, right? So we'll love for you to sort of share and sort of walk through some of those key best practices or tools um, that you give others for their interviews. I love that you're going to let me talk about this because <laughs> I was like, let's rush through my career and get to the really fun stuff. Like, this is my passion point. I love this. And again, I love what you've done with this platform. I love that you've made it an opportunity. I, I love that you've made this out an opportunity for female executives to listen to other female executives tell their stories from a diverse array, right? We've mm -hmm. talked about this earlier. You've got so many diverse executives here and not just in, in like in, in their job title diversity, right? Yeah. So what I love is, and, and in interviewing them, you've probably challenged executives that are not media facing to examine their story. Yeah. So I like to, I'm going to tell a quick Hugh Weber story. One of my fabulous mentors from HBSC, now <laughs> CEO of the Seattle Sounders, he, we're in a mentoring session one day and he said, Laura, in one hand, I want you to hold up what you think of yourself, your brand, who you are, your values, everything you stand for. I said, great, got it. And he said, on the other hand, I want you to hold up how everyone else sees you, how your peers see you, how the world sees you. And I said, great, got it. He goes, now, how close are your two hands? The distance between who you are, your values, your why, and how the world is interpreting you and how you're showing up and how you're being seen is where you're going to suffer in your life or in your career. So how closely can you bring those two things so that in every decision that you're making and answer you're giving your it's all coming from that why it's all coming from your very core does that make sense yes yes i love that so i love that as sort of the basis for for and first step into the discussion around your personal brand and who you are as you show up in these interviews um, now, typically when I do a media training, I start with a cold open of Jay Shetty with his beautiful English, South Asian, Indian <laughs> accent, telling a, a Socrates parallel about the three filter tests. And it's really like when you're speaking, is it, is it true? Is it good? And is it useful? Right. If we look at everything that we're sharing with our journalists, is it true, good and useful? Um, and so often our media executives don't necessarily want to prep. They say, I don't, I don't, I want to be authentic. I don't want to prep. Um, and it's not necessarily about being inauthentic when you prepare for an interview. It's about being efficient. It's about having empathy for the journalists with whom you're working who have 18 other interviews to conduct that day. Um, it's about if you're at Cheddar News and you're doing an interview, it's essentially like doing an interview in a bounce house at the New York Stock Exchange <laughs> with whistles blowing and bells going and people going by on cell phones. It's like being at an eight-year-old birthday party, right? If you can do an interview there, you can do it any, anywhere. But <laughs> understanding that even during that interview moment, you were there to create content that's well-packaged. Mm -hmm. um, so most executives head into their first interview experiences because you have to reach a certain point in your career where speaking to media is part of your career goal and job description, where you're entering a new role. So for example, Deanna, when was the first interview that you gave in a new role? Oh, man like true interview. I don't feel like I did any true interviews until I was probably the VP of ticket sales of the Cavs, but I presented while at Teambo, like in front of, you know, for our sales and marketing meeting. So that was, it was an interview, but it was very like hardcore presenting. 
at Teambo. So I feel like that's where I sort of cut my teeth. And then um, interview wise, it wasn't until, until the Cavs. I want to come back to presenting because that's um, its own hour and a half long podcast. <laughs> and there's such an art to the, to the live, to the presenting and your voice inflection and you have it. You have such wonderful warmth. Um, but when we think about, you know, most executives go into their first interview and it's, I've gotten a new job. I now have an S or an E or a C in front of my title. And I'm being asked how the new role came about, mm-hmm. or I'm being asked about my career history. Now you in this podcast ask it in a very linear way, purposefully. Most journalists will not need it in, an, in a linear way, right? So the first step in a lot of these interview processes, if you've just been named president of XYZ team, we don't need to hear about your internship with the blue clause, right? We need to hear, like, we need to package that 20 years of industry experience across these four leagues and these three teams. Um, so working with executives to package their expertise into that 12 sentence or less background, right? Um, and then can you, as you say, how did this come about? You are working with XYZ team. Instead of saying, well, I met John for coffee or I bumped into him at the Sportico event and he asked if I wanted to do this job or Len Perna, your friend at Turnkey put us together, saying, I have 25 years experience in X and Y and Z. This wonderful organization that I'm joining is looking for Z, E and F. Together we will build one, two and three, right? So all of our answers should should tell the stories of our ambitions, what I call the ambition pitch for what we're going to do. Because so often, you know, if you think of a painter, and my aunt is this incredible painter, when she paints a picture and she goes to sell it, they say, how long did it take you to paint this picture? And what she says is, it took me 30 years to paint this picture. And I think we don't think of our careers that way, especially as women. Mm-hmm. When you write a plan, when your CEO tells you to write up a plan or a strategy, and they say, well, how long did that really take? So it took me 30 years. It took me 20 years of experience to write this plan. So something else that, that when you pull your journalists, when I reach out to my journalists and I say, what are, what are the, not mistakes, but what are the missteps that you're seeing female executives make in their interviews? More often than not, they will say they're not taking credit. Your female executives will not take credit, right? And there have been plenty of studies sh- shown that, that women believe that their external forces are driving their circumstances and men think that their internal forces are driving their circumstances, a whole locus of control, right? But so often this, this imposter syndrome that women have in the workplace as executives creeps into the way that they interview. Yeah. So if you're moderating on stage and you welcome a host and you praise her career, the first thing she might say is, oh no, it's not, it's not me, it's my team. So sometimes we actually have to coach women to take the compliments on stage. And if they feel very, they can certainly pivot and say, oh, thank you so much for that wonderful compliment. I really owe much of my career to the great mentorship given to me by X executive. Um, but understanding how to be comfortable with those compliments. Yes. So there's a wonderful quote by Winston Churchill that says, if you want me to speak for two minutes, it'll take me three weeks to prepare. If you want me to speak for 30 minutes, it'll take me a week to prepare. And if you want me to speak for an hour, I'm ready now. Right. <laughs> but so often we don't package and stop and prepare ourselves. Stone on your interview. And she's talking about the three P's. If I ask Jake Reynolds what the three C's of coaching are, just taking that extra second to package your thought leadership in a way that is digestible for your journalists. And if you listen to, again, you have created a wonderful catalog here of interviews that executives can listen to to understand how people are telling their story. Kim Van Stone and Kim Davis do a beautiful job. If you Tony Robbins interview, if it's an hour and a half long, she does a beautiful job of telling her stories in a way that reflect her product in a funny, cute, you know, confidence building way. 
Um, but as you go into to interviews generally, the best practice is to provide three new data points and one new breaking news element. So part of media training is mastering the tools in our toolbox, right? So this is not just using on record, on background, off the record, understanding how to use those tools in a way that supports and helps the journalists, right? You have to empathize and respect the needs of your journalists. They have content they need to create. They have news and data that they have to deliver. So being transparent to start with your interviewer and your journalist about their goals. Um, helping them not bury the lead. If your journalist asks you a question that's a little left of center, help bring them back to a place that you're providing the content that you want to provide and their viewers or listeners or readers want to read. More often than not, you're always speaking through the journalist to their audience and trying to understand what will help provide them the best notes for their audience. So we have a lot of fun with word choice in interviews. You know, a great, great awful exercise to do. Don't practice in front of a mirror, practice in front of your cell phone. So if everyone took their cell phone out, recorded themselves talking about something in their business for a minute to five minutes, and then watch it back with the sound down. What are your hands doing? What are your, like, and, and again, if you did a lot of presentations in Tebow, you know your ticks. What are your ticks? You're presenting. What are your ticks that you would watch yourself? Is it saying like? Is it the uhs, ahs, ands? Is it the hey guys, you know? Is it you put your hands in your hair all the time? What did you do, Deanna, that you had to work through? My biggest feedback was I talk too fast um, and the ums. <laughs> and the ums, right, right. And if you, if you replaced every um with a pause, and if you worked on the lyricalness of your voice to make it more, less staccato, there's all these fun tricks that we like to talk about in media training. Um, you know, answering hypotheticals, that's a no-no. Play the game and create your own hypothetical. Deprecating jokes, this comes back to imposter syndrome for women sometimes. Oh no, you know, not me, I'm not this, I'm not that. We don't make self-deprecating jokes in interviews, right? Um, looking at straight at the camera or the monitor, everyone wants to see themselves on TV, look at the interviewer. So they're all, we have, we have so many fun. I mean, I love media training. It's part of my favorite part of my job. Okay. But let's talk for one second up talk, right? I yeah. come onto the zoom. I'm late. Hi everyone. I'm so sorry. I'm late. Um, things were just crazy. So, um, my name is Laura and I think in about five minutes, we'll go over the data as opposed to don't apologize. Hi everyone. Thank you for your patience. In five minutes, we'll begin to go over the data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How that, that up talk can be Right. It can make it, we're, we're, it's like we're asking for permission every time we up talk. Um, we think we're being comprehensive and welcoming, but we're actually just, it sounds like we're, we're giving away our power. Mm -hmm. um, I will say trail off sentences is a big no-no. So often I hear my executives give these beautiful long answers and they kind of lose confidence at the very end. And they give this beautiful answer and they kind of trail into, you know, and it doesn't <laughs> bookend the quote. Give the journalist that beautiful quote that they're looking for. In, in utilizing these these incredible best practices that you just you know beautifully walk through, um, great takeaways, great training tips. Um, and I personally will be you know I was writing notes every <laughs> everything you were saying, and I'm looking forward to it, it, it continue to practice myself because you know practice makes perfect. You make such a good point with word choices specifically too. You know, if you think about that phrase, we are the four people that we surround ourselves with the most, right? If if the way that you're observing absorbing vernacular and language is what you're listening to the most. Mm -hmm. And so often I will take as a communications executive, but also just an executive in the industry, I'll take a week and just say, this is my, my Adam Silver week. I'm just going to listen to Adam Silver podcasts all week. And I'm just going to absorb his language yeah. and I'm going to listen and I'm going to take two days and just listen to league CMOs. I'm going to listen to what, what Heidi is saying from the NHL. I just want to listen to her language. 
And I want to, and the way she uses certain words reminds me of her history and reminds me of her career history. Mm-hmm. And so if we surround ourselves with the language, again, why a podcast like this is so interesting, if I if I'm teaching if I'm going to be doing media training around diversity equity and inclusion I want to hear Kim Davis she's my favorite I want to hear David Gould who runs diversity equity and inclusion at the Philadelphia 76ers and Harris Blitzer I want to hear that language so that I'm familiar with it and I can use the best language when I'm doing media training to your point earlier I typically say you're going to hate me in media training you're not going to like me this isn't going to be a fun process for you i'm gonna i'm here to but the second you walk into that fox business studio and it's five o'clock in the morning and it's pin drop quiet and it's 30 degrees and your anchors have been up since 3 a.m and they're wide awake and they've got eight interviews after you and you have to be sharp and poignant and alert and you have five minutes to get all of your points across beautifully and there's going to be a gotcha question in there you're going to leave that studio and you're going to say i'm glad you're on that wall right (laughs) so this is why it's it's so you cannot over prepare enough Um, to get your point and your brand across i I love talking about media training i love talking about presentation skills Mm -hmm. i think there's so many confidence building and and speaking slowly calms you down it does. The it does. slower it does. you speak, the calmer you become. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard for me to to really try to speak slower. And I I, I would imagine um, Amy Brooks right now is if she was listening to this was saying you're still talking <laughs> too fast, Diana. <laughs> but this is this this is slower than it was, you know, shockingly. But um, no, it's it's incredible. And again, thank you so much. Um, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of uh, people reaching out to you after this conversation to to learn more about your training. Training and if you're going on the road and doing anything private on the side. Oh, I, I could talk all day. It's one of my real joys is seeing mm. people that I've worked with, executives I've worked with, tell their story and not just like telling their story. So many of them say, I don't want it to be about me. I mean, it's not about you. It's about the hundred other executives that worked in this initiative with you. You are just the lucky one that we have nominated to speak about this amazing initiative that 15 people on your team have worked on. And now a hundred people in your organization are going to read about this initiative. So it's a really special honor to deliver media. And I'm, I'm really proud to be working with executives now and over the last certainly seven years at Harris Blitzer that were really innovative knew that the interview was bigger than themselves, respected the journalists and the role that they had to do. And it, it made for a really beautiful last decade of communication. So I, I so appreciate you, again, creating this forum for women to tell their stories personally and in business for a number of reasons. Well, thank you. The next topic um, that's themed out, we talk about every episode, and obviously, you know, we've we've really sort of touched in on your family and your extraordinary family and your journey. Um, but the conversation that we always have with every speaker since conversation one was lifestyle. And as you know, just in general, as, as working moms and as working women professionals, there's always this question about work-life balance. And in this podcast, what we've done is we've sort of thrown out this work-life balance concept and just talk about lifestyle. Like this is a lifestyle. This is a industry that, that we've chosen. Um, and it's this idea that we construct our lifestyles um, personalized to um, the people in our lives, our families, and the things that are important to us. So just curious, how have you structured your lifestyle so it works for you and your family and your career? You know, I'm not sure if this is going to be an unpopular way or a very popular way of, of beginning to answer this question, which is, <laughs> I believe very firmly in leaving dirty dishes in the sink overnight. I believe in laundry baskets that are full of clean clothes that just sort of age. 
and they get put away when they get put away. I, I believe in priorities, right? I, I joke about the sign on the wall that says you can have it all and it, it isn't all. It's what you decide that all is and you prioritize what all is and you find creative ways of including what all is satisfying to you. Um, you know, all I'm coming off of a weekend with, let's see, two hours of my daughter's field hockey, three lacrosse games, one softball game, one trip to urgent care for strep throat, you know, got up at 4am, jumped on the concept three rower, caught my flight at 7am. Here I am in LA, a full incredible week of sports business journal world Congress and elevate sports ventures summit um, company summit in front of me. I've got a really cool angel city FC event on Wednesday night that I wish you were in town for I know desperately, (laughs) but I think some of us thrive and back to that more is more. I think some of us thrive on the busyness. And I think athletes, especially we, didn't we all get better grades when we were in season because we had to budget our time and balance our time. Um, So the fact that I'm coaching my daughter's basketball team, field hockey team, lacrosse team, I didn't play two of those sports, right? But (laughs) I promise we have winning records. It's good. Um, But this is, you know, and I I also work for executives who are, I work for a lot of executives who are girl dads, to be honest. Al Guido, father of three girls. Chip Bowers, father of two girls. Scott O'Neill, father of three girls. Hugh Weber, father of four or two girls. Jake Reynolds, father of three girls. Like I work for a lot of girl dads, um, which has always been special to me. So to, to know that I'm on the phone with Chip Hours while he's driving, you know, Poppy or Charlie to a ski trip, or I'm catching up with Al Guido while he's, you know, grabbing rebounds with his daughter outside shooting hoops, or that my daughter grew up alongside Jake Reynolds and Jillian Frechette's kids at the Bunker Suite at the Devil's Games. I mean, those are really special memories. And how special are we in this industry that you can bring your children to events and they can share in this magical industry that is so important to you? I mean, the first time I saw Disney on Ice, a property I'd worked with for 10 years, with my daughter who was four years old, I bawled my eyes out. I cried. I was like, it's so beautiful. Right. Like, and it was, this is the magic. I mean, as a working mother in this industry, is that not one of the joys is that your, your children see you doing it all. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the integration of how it's it's not how you balance one over the other. It's how do you bring it all together? Right. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what you're, that's what you're talking about. And that is the beautiful thing. Um, I do remember the first time I lined my twins up to slap hands with the Cavs players oh. here in the tunnel. And I'm, oh. I remember slapping hands, you know, for the first time, I think it was Vince Carter at a, you know, at a Pistons, you know, Toronto Raptors game and like never <laughs> wanting to wash my hand and then watching my kids do the exact same thing I did. You know, just like, oh my God, I, like, that's incredible that that is a moment I'll never forget, you know? Um, and then every moment after that and all the, all the shared, experiences whether they're with you if they're not with you like you're in LA right now but you're going to still share that experience with with your family you know um and I think that that's where you sort of find this um wholeness you know and and all the travel and the hours and sort of time becomes almost an illusion you know Mm -hmm. I remember cleaning out my my sister's office um when I was moving over to Elevate and finding a diaper in there and and (laughs) like the last pacifier that hadn't been thrown out right was in there and, and those were such incredible memories. But I think, you know, the industry is full of working parents. And I have so many incredible journalists with whom I work that I can call Scott Soshnick, Scott Soshnick with Sportico. And in a second, the first question is, how is Jackson's hockey? What is he doing? What's he go? Okay, he's a goalie. What's going on? What's the next tournament? How's Edmonton, right? And these relationships that we have as parents within the industry, and you work the team bow with Brendan Donahue, a mm-hmm. wonderful human. And I remember my first trip up to see to see the Timbo offices because Scott said, get up to New York. Everyone's in New York. Go meet with everyone. And sitting across from Brendan Donahue and, and 
him saying, well, tell me about your children. I said, I have a son. His name is Carter. He said, well, my son's name is Carter. And I said, oh. And I said, well, my son has cerebral palsy. And he goes, well, my Carter has cerebral palsy too. Yeah. And if anyone knows Carter, he's a, he's a beloved member of the NBA 2K community. He's, mm-hmm. he's a renowned weightlifter now. He's very, very <laughs> esteemed. Um, and But how special was that moment for me? to be sitting there at the NBA league office across from wonderful Brendan Donahue hearing, oh, my, my son is cerebral palsy and his son is Carter. I mean, it's a really wonderful moment for me, but for the richness of the moments, it's almost amplified in terms of our appreciation and gratitude for this industry when we experience it through the eyes of our children. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And to close things up, what advice would you share with someone who's looking to grow their career in this industry that may have had or may someday have similar experiences along their journey as you? I would say, and I feel like you will agree with me, um, I will say that at every point in our, in our careers in our industry, from our first entry point to you know, our, our, what our corner office, whatever it might be, at every level, you will use duct tape. At every level, you were going to be looking for a Sharpie at the last minute. And I remember, you know, whether I was with Disson skating on ice up to the NBA teams at the last minute, everyone needs duct tape and everyone's looking for a Sharpie. Now, that's as a metaphor as much as it is sometimes we all need a Sharpie, um, which is why we have them attached everywhere. But you have to understand that it's it's going to be a gritty industry. And that's why we love it, right? We love being the last car to leave sometimes because we love this industry. I would also say, again, don't be married to the logo on your business card. Be married to the idea of access and opportunity and inspiration and education. That's what you're looking for in your first job and in your fifth job. Um, you know, I think be a student of your industry, especially in the communications world. So often young aspiring communications executives will ask me for advice and I'll say, what are you reading? And Twitter is not the right answer to advice. That's a trick question. <laughs> what are you reading? Is, are you really, are you reading USA Today well enough to know what Jeff Zilgit is writing about, right? Are you reading Yahoo Finance well enough to, or watching the shows to know what Josh is, like, are you really being a student of the industry? It takes me 45 minutes to listen to a 20 minute podcast. Because as I listen to the podcast, I'm thinking, that's a great question. I wonder how Craig Martin at Elevate Sports Ventures would answer that question. Ooh, listen to the word choice that he uses here. I should stop right now this run and send this podcast to XYZ Executive on my team because I know that Cameron Wagner will love that that word choice. So as as long as we're continuing to listen and learn and read right now, as as a student, especially, the world is your oyster. You have so many opportunities to learn and engage with the industry. Thank you so much for that advice, your insights, sharing your story with us. You are amazing, Laura. And I thank you so much for taking the time with me. Well, congratulations on your, what was it again, 63rd episode? 63rd episode, yes. Holy smokes. Can I I push you to tell your audience the quote that inspired you to start the podcast? Because I thought it was so fabulous. Be brave enough to suck at something new (laughs) I like love that I think you are so brave and all parts of this were positive and incredible and and you are a wonderful shining example of an executive that has used their platform and used their voice in a powerful impactful way more and more happy that there are examples like you for younger generations of sports business executives male and female And that's a wrap on episode 63. Thank you to Laura for sharing her remarkable journey, those incredible media trading tips, and her insights with all of us today. As a thank you to Laura, our friends at the Pro Sports Assembly will provide her with a one-year membership to join Pro. 
Pro Sports Assembly is an industry member-led association helping events equity in pro sports. I want to thank Pro for their incredible support and believing in the mission of the podcast. And I encourage you to visit prosportsassembly.org to learn more about how to become a member. Now to stay connected and to engage with the Women Blazers community, I encourage you to follow us on Instagram at Women Blazers. And be sure to check out our next episode dropping Monday, May 8th, featuring Jennifer Martindale, Senior Vice President of Marketing for the Chicago Cubs of the MLB. Until next time, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week.